Spirit, we want to thank you and praise you, Lord, for allowing us the freedom, Lord, to worship you, to praise you, to study your word. And as we look into your word today, may your Holy Spirit minister to us. May may he convict us of the things that, Lord, we need to be convicted of. May he deal with us personally in our area of belief. And may he, Lord, put a desire in our hearts to look for the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to live for him during this season of life that we have. May you, O God, minister to us. And yet, Lord, reveal your future plan for us. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we talked some about the beam of seat of Jesus Christ. Uh, next week, uh, we'll talk a little bit about the difference between the rapture and the second coming. Uh, really, in the Old Testament, there's really no real scripture per se you can really put your hand on to talk about the uh, rapture because it was not really an Old Testament theme, uh, but it's in the New Testament. And what we want to be able to show you that there's nothing required per se for the rapture to take place. That's why they say it's intimate. It can happen any time. The second coming is where all the prophecy is given. The, di- the biggest difference is going to be with the rapture, Jesus never touched his feet on earth. But the second coming, he does touch earth again. Now, what we're going to somewhat set ourselves up for today is to move also into the teaching about the millennium the thousand-year reign of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, many people don't believe that Christ will reign again here on earth for a thousand years. And if you really begin to look at Scripture, and people have always said, well, when is this coming? When is he coming? And there's always going to be scoffers, always going to be doubters, always going to be people who question whether or not if Christ is ever going to return. For a lot of those people who question if Christ ever returned, they question if he ever came the first time. You need to understand that in mind. In the millennial, or before the millennial, there is a judgment that takes place, which is called the Bema Seat. After the millennial, we have the white throne judgment, which is strictly for the unbeliever. The Bema Seat, or the Judgment Seat of Christ, is only for the believer. Now, a lot of people still believe in just a one-time judgment. But there's those two judgments that will take place. The one before the millennium, then the other one that will take place also after the millennium. Why? Because you have two battles that take place. You have the battle of Armageddon that takes place before the millennial and before Christ returns with his saints to rule the earth for a thousand years. And then after that thousand years, you have another war that is not Armageddon, but it's totally different because Satan is loose for a thousand years. If you want to see the big difference between those two wars, you do not hear anything 
of the false prophet or the beast in the second war. The war leading up to Armageddon, it says that the false prophet and the beast are taken captive and thrown into the lake of fire. You do not hear anything of the false prophet or the beast concerning the second war. What is stated about the second war is that the kings of the earth and the Satan has gathered them together to make war against Christ. And you have that second war. But there's some things that take place before the millennial does. And it's very important to look at. Because there's a name of a city or a philosophy, as we looked at the word Babylon and so forth, and Nimrod and his wife and where it came from and so forth. And whenever you see Babylon in scripture, it always is referring or talking about rebellion. That people are rebellious. <laughs> and people who are rebellious, you could somewhat say they are following the philosophy of Babylon. That which is totally against God. Or the Antichrist. Because out of Babylon comes all the heresies and the false teachings, even of today. You can trace many false teachings back to the time of Babylon. The other thing that you really want to recognize is this. Babylon is destroyed before the millennium takes place, and then it is stated, is never heard of again. So you don't hear it, anything of Babylon, that great city, after the millennial period. You don't hear anything. Now, those three events before the millennial are something that, we need to really take note of. The first is the real destruction of Babylon or a philosophy or a teaching or a government style that is going to be set up during the tribulation period. Why? Because it's not heard of on the other side of the millennium. But in the seventh bowl in Revelation 16:17, you also hear these words, it is done. It is done. It is done. And that's important to catch. And then in verse 16, you hear the scripture saying, For boy, I come like a thief in the night. Uh, let's go to it just to refresh our minds. Revelation 16, verse 17. If you'll take note, he says, The seventh angel poured out his bowl. But while you're back up in verse 15, you're in... The sixth bowl. It's not until the seventh bowl that God's wrath is poured out. And is very much so mentioned that his wrath is poured out. It says in verse 15 of chapter 16 of Revelation, Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. And we talked, we, we took those three parts of that verse and we broke it down two weeks ago. But the thing is that you will not be found naked. Remember when you go into, and what we're going to be talking about also, is the marriage and then the marriage feast. There is a marriage 
that takes place in heaven. And there's a purpose for that marriage that takes place. So we're going to look just a little bit at the Hebrew-style marriage and hopefully connect it with what Scripture says of the marriage between Christ and the church. But he says, boy, behold, I come like a thief. And he says that as far back into Revelations chapter 16. And then in 17, the seventh angel poured out his bow into the air. And out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. And when he says it is done, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God. Babylon is now destroyed. Everything has now taken place. It is finished in a sense. He is stating it beforehand. It is done because when you go into chapter 18 and 19, when 17, 18, and 19, you're going to see the fall of Babylon, that great city. You begin to see how God dismantled it. He also makes the statement where he says the great city split into three parts in that verse 19. We're going to talk about those three parts because nothing can exist as an organization or government or club or group without those three parts. But then, when you get over into 18, he says in verse 20 and 18, he says, Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. Now, I want you to catch an order in which Scripture puts that. He's telling us to rejoice. What are we rejoicing about? The fall of Babylon, the fall of a system. And what we're rejoicing is that our king has become the king over it all now. That the kingdoms of this world has truly become the kingdom of his. And he is the one who is going to control. And you have to understand, they're looking and they're seeing that, boy, when Christ comes, here comes this millennial period. It comes and it all takes place just before the millennial or the reign of Christ for a thousand years. And he says, rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. Now, I want you to catch the order. The saints are the present. The saints of God, those who died during the tribulation are called saints also. So we're looking at saints, and I'm going to take the word saints from here, from the time in which the rapture takes place, all the way back to another distinguished time, and he distinguishes the time by using the word apostles, because apostles only had a period of time. So it's the time of the saints, time of the apostles. Then he talks about the prophets. Well, in the Old Testament, there were no what? Apostles. They were still known as saints. But what was really known in the Old Testament were prophets. He covers all three time periods in a sense. The saints, the apostles, the prophets. And he says to the body of Christ at that point, rejoice now. Rejoice. And he comes right back again when you start in 19 and it says, boy, hallelujah. 
After I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude. What is that great multitude? That's all the saints, the time of the apostles, the time of the prophets. Oh, they're all rejoicing because they are now perceiving or seeing what God has promised. And all heaven arose with a joy. And it says, Hallelujah. Now, understand sometime. The word hallelujah also oftentimes follow in the scripture with punishment. The hallelujah comes that he who judges rightly has judged. Hallelujah. The one who is to judge, the one who has been given the command to judge and that he would judge all things, has now judged and punished. Hallelujah! And all heaven shouted out because of what takes place. And it says, he had condemned the great prostitute. Who is that? Babylon. Babylon. Who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. Her adulteries is her false teaching. The false belief that many people follow. That's her adultery that takes place. It takes us from the true word to the false. The great city is split into three parts. Tell you we would talk about those three parts and I want to suggest this to you. No nation or no organization can really function without these three parts. Now, what I also want you to do is begin to look at America and ask yourself this question. Are these three parts in trouble in America today? For no nation can really exist or stand if these three parts begin to fail or falter. No organization can stand because of it. The first one is government itself, the political part. In every club, in every organization, you have a political part. If people are voting for who's going to be president, who's going to be treasurer, who's going to be secretary, who's going to be the, that's that political part. And it's a reality. And the whole process is that you see the false prophet and the beast ruling and governing. And you can see that in Revelation. Okay. That, that, that they rule and that they govern. The second is the financial, economically. Now, we're seeing, one, our government is in a disarray. You can call it gridlock. You can call it whatever you want to call. This is going to be my hardest election to choose someone to vote for. Uh, just don't see anybody on the horizon who could really be worthy of being president. Uh, I mean, just a lot of things that are happening in our political circle even. That is frightening. And then the economical. Uh, we had 2008, and now there's a forecast that something may happen that will be far, far worse than 2008. So we're still not on solid ground financially yet 
here in America. We're on very shaky ground. And yet, oftentimes, we don't understand that tomorrow we could wake up and we would be under a different currency or the American dollar would mean nothing. Now, what does that mean to you? If you had $100,000 in the bank and our currency changes, you got zero. So you don't trust in your what? In your money. Hey. I never understood that until the banker came here because we were applying for a loan and everything to move forward with the other building and so forth. And first mayor came and said, at this point, we're not doing any more loans for construction or anything because the dollar is so weak. And if it fails, everything goes to zero. <laughs> and we have to start over. <laughs> you know. So our political area is in trouble. Our financial area is in trouble. And Babylon, it says it was split into three areas. I believe these are two of them. The third one is, boy, the religion. What you worship. (laughs) And you go back into the financial, you couldn't buy or sell without what? The mark, the control of it. And everybody was forced, in a sense, to worship who? The image. Where your religion get distorted. If you look at any civilized or any tribal people or anything, you'll find these three things. The political, the economical, the religion. They're always, in a sense, tied together. Now, don't think atheist or a country that doesn't believe is not a religion. Atheism is a religion. When your political, your economical, and your religion of what people believe is done away with, you are destroyed as a nation. You are destroyed. And it says Babylon is broken into three parts. They are destroyed utterly. The ruling class, the rulers, the false prophet and the beast, the economics, and the so-called religion that they had. Totally destroyed and wiped out. We talked about 20 where the saints, the apostles, and the prophets where God is declaring that, boy, they're up there saying, Hallelujah! Babylon is what? Destroyed. The ones that cut my head off, they are totally destroyed. They have now been judged. The one who put me to death because I would not take the mark, they are now destroyed. And there's that crowd, that multitude of people that are rejoicing. And Babylon, again, always means rebellion that is taking place. The judgment seat of Christ is going to take place before the millennial takes place. You have to understand this principle about God. Judgment always begins where at first? In the house of God. God has to always correct his own people and judge his own people before he can do it where? Out here. always has to judge his own household first. That's why even in Scripture, I believe, 
that in Timothy when it speaks, if a pastor doesn't have his own house in order, how can he what? Rule outside of it. That's not just something God came up with. That's what something God practices. That his own house be in order. His own house is judged before he does it outside. And then it comes to that area that at the judgment seat that we're going to be judged. And these are strictly Christians. Go ahead over with me to Second Corinthians, if you would. Chapter 5. And this is not a judgment of condemnation. This is a judgment of rewards. How you will be rewarded. What kind of reward you're going to receive. It's not a judgment of wrath or where you are disqualified from entering into heaven. Everybody here is going to heaven. Everybody in the white throne judgment is going to hell. No mistakes. He says in verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's everyone who names the name of Christ. We're all going to have an appointed time with Jesus Christ in which he is going to look into our lives, although he's already looked, that he's going to allow you to see your, what your works really were. If your works were worthless or worthy of him. Was your works about yourself or were your works about him? Oftentimes in life, we have this false belief that I am saved, that God will take care of me for the rest of my life and be my butler, my maid, and provide me whatever I want. The real issue is this. God saved you, as he says in Ephesians 8, but when you get into that verse 10, he says that he has saved you through Jesus Christ, that you might do what? Good works. He saved you to work in his kingdom. He saved you to be an ambassador for him. He saved you that you're just not someone just receiving blessings from him, but you are someone who have a heart and a desire to really be a servant for him. And that's what you're going to be judged on. Very quickly, judgment seat of Christ. For he says... You'll be rejudged what is done while in the body, whether it be good or what? Bad. Now, can Christians do bad things? Yes. But you're going to give an account for it. Hey. He says every idle word will be judged. Every little swear word, cuss word, every little uh, word of unkindness, every word of anger, all that you're going to be judged He's not going to miss it. And I want you to understand, God keeps very good records. He keeps very good records. He doesn't miss it. But he says you're going to be judged for good or bad. You're going to be judged. Did you build a Christian life? Did you really build a Christian life? Okay, I'm saved. Go check out Peter. Peter said, did you add to your faith? 
Are you building with gold, silver, precious stone? Are you building with wood, hay, and stubble? What are you really building with? Because, see, you're the architect now, in some ways, of this home that you're building. You can build it that it can't stand the storms, or you can build it in a way that it's just blown over, and you're tossed and thrown with every little wind of doctrine. And you don't know what you believe. Too often people can say, I'm saved, but can't tell you where the book of Genesis is at. I'm saved, but they can't quote anything about what God's word says. I'm saved. Saved for what? What's the purpose of being saved? What's the purpose of being redeemed? What is the purpose of you having the Holy Spirit living in you? What is the purpose of God empowering you if you never use the power that is given unto you? Secondly, did you train yourself? Did you train yourself? Were you in the Word of God studying? Were you training yourself? Were you teaching yourself? Were you reconditioning your mind? For once you thought as the world thinks, but are you thinking now as Christ thinks? It doesn't take place by osmosis or something just dropping from heaven into your brain. The scripture says you study to what? Show yourself approved. You got to work at it. Most Christians don't want to go to Bible study. Most Christians don't want to even open the Word of God. Most Christians don't even have a devotional time. Most Christians don't care what's between the pages. All they care about is that I made a confession and I'm saved. I would check it. I would check it. Because if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things pass away. Behold, all things are becoming new. And if things are not becoming new in your life and you're not thinking differently and you're still living like the world, you made a confession and the Lord says, yes, there's those that with the mouth, they say, Lord, Lord, but their heart is where at? Far from me. Their heart is far from me. They give me no thought. They're not obedient. Unto me. If you love me, you'll keep my what? So it's evidence that you what? Love the Lord. But there's no evidence that you love the Lord. You're not training yourself. You're not teaching yourself. No man or woman will stay with each other unless there's evidence that they really love each other. And it can't be a one-way street. One person can't love where the other person's all receiving and the other one doesn't. It doesn't work well. Do you remain faithful to Christ? You're going to be judged on your faithfulness. You're going to be judged on your servitude. Are you really faithful to Christ? Ask yourself this question. If God was faithful to me as I am faithful to him, where might I be? The scriptures declare that he is faithful. But we are so unfaithful. That's even Pastor Brown. I have a lot of slip-ups in my life. But I thank God that his promise is that he's going to work with me continuously. And he's still working in my life. To bring me to that point of faithfulness.
to him. And you have to begin to learn how to practice being faithful to the Lord. That's something you have to strive for. You have to work at. It's not done by trickery. That if you come to church, we give you $50. If you come to church, we're going to feed you exactly what you want to eat. If you come to church, everything is favorable. No. You train yourself by coming into the body of Christ. Why? Because Scripture says iron does what? Sharpen iron. We sharpen each other. We prepare each other. We encourage each other to keep looking for the blessed hope. We encourage each other that our work is not in vain. We're here to encourage each other. We build each other up. We esteem each other. And the question is, are you faithful today unto the Lord? Don't be faithful to a church. Don't be faithful to a pastor. Don't be faithful to a denomination. We was having one finishing up his membership class, and I was sharing with him. Your faithfulness is not unto the church, but unto the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where your faithfulness belongs. Do you produce good works? If somebody was to look in your life, would they see more of the world or more of the kingdom of God? What would they really see? Would they see you acting more like the world, looking more like the world, doing more of the worldly things, or would they really see you in love with Christ, declaring this everlasting gospel, sharing it and living it out before other people, being kind to all people, ministering to all people, that you're there as an example and an ambassador for Christ, not for self, not for self. Oftentimes, Christians get caught in this scenario. I live for myself. And the sad part about that is this. They're living on survival. They're in survival mode. If I can say it like this, they're in the, they're in the water. And they're constantly beating against the water to keep their head above air. Not knowing upon the command of Jesus, they could walk on water. Big difference in life. A big difference in life. God has saved you. And once he saved you, understand this. You are now his responsibility. And he will take care of you if you allow him to. So there's two people that's going to basically take care of you. Either God or yourself. And when you're taking care of yourself, you're using all the trickery of Satan to get over Is your heart in the work? Is your heart really in the work? For what you do for the Lord, do you do it joyfully? Or do you somehow figure, if I serve God, I'm going to suffer. If I serve God, I'm going to miss something. If I serve God, I'm not going to be as happy as the people out here in the world that's partying. God called me into ministry and I left a very good paying job at Chrysler. 
it took years for me to begin to be paid what I was making at Chrysler when I left. The thing about serving the Lord, God meets all of your needs. And the only thing I can say for my own life, God has educated three children. God has allowed Elaine and I to live very comfortably. God has provided for us in so many different ways. And let me share this to you. When you turn your life over to God, you won't miss anything. God knows what you have need of. He says, look at the lilies of the field. Aren't they taken care of? Aren't they clothed? And understand this in Scripture. God wants his children to shine. He wants you to show off to the world of what he's able to do with nothing. Is your heart in it? When you work for the Lord, is your heart in it? When you witness for the Lord, is your heart in it? When you give to the Lord, is your heart in it? Is your heart really in it? And he says, judgment begins in God's house. And we have to understand that principle. That that's where it begins, in his house. Now, when you get back into Revelation 19 again, let's go back there. Because... This third thing has to take place. And I'm moving pretty fast. That's why I'm not taking time to read a lot of the scriptures, but they're there for you to go and look at. So I'm going to slow up just a little bit. The third thing that has to take place is that area of the marriage and, 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 and the wedding of the Lamb. The church, the bride, Jesus, the groom. I'm going to walk through this just a little bit slower. Because what I want you to catch is this. is what Satan has robbed from a society or from people everywhere. The marriage is an example of of Jesus Christ and his church all the way through all the way through man and Satan has totally destroyed in a sense that institution or people's thinking of that institution each step heading up to marriage has a vital important role But if you miss those roles, you miss those steps, it's going to hinder you as you enter into marriage. And it is that which really has to take place. So in 19, I want you to pick up with me in verse 6. Because again, you hear this sound of hallelujah, hallelujah. This whole area of rejoicing. 
because something is getting ready to also climax. He says, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Here's the reason. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. The wedding of the Lamb has come. Here's that build-up part to the marriage. Where the wedding takes place. The wedding is not marriage, and marriage is not wedding. Wedding leads you, where at? Into marriage. It's a step which you take going into marriage. But the wedding itself is not the marriage. It's the ceremony of joining what? Two people together. And what's going to be joined at this wedding is Jesus Christ and the church. Jesus Christ and his saints. They're going to be merged now together for eternity. The wedding has taken place. He is the groom. And the church is always spoken of as the what? As the bride. If you have a groom and if you have a bride, supposedly you, one day you're looking for what? A marriage to take place or a wedding to take place which will consummate itself in a marriage. And it's called that wedding. The wedding of the Lamb has come. Now, listen to the second part of this, because we're going to talk about it. And his bride has made herself what? Ready. Her bride has made herself ready. The bride finds a spot sometime before the wedding to do what? And I'm going to share something with you men. On that day, you may see the most beautiful woman that you may not never see again. (laughs) But in that, you hold her and you hold that picture of her for the rest of your life. It doesn't matter what you wake up to, because you got the picture. (laughs) You got the picture. Same thing with you, wife. That groom kind of what? Fix himself up. He looks pretty sharp with his three-piece or whatever. Everything matching. May not never match again. But, but, but he's fixed up for that day. And you take picture of him. And you hold it. And he says, boy, they've been made ready. They have their wedding garments on. They have their wedding garments on. I don't have time to go through it, but you go to Matthew 22, you, you see the marriage thing that takes place, and Israel was the one that God first sent out and called for to call to this marriage feast, and then he, they didn't respond, and then he sends everybody out to just everybody to the four corners of the world, and it, Gentiles come, everybody comes, and then he finds one in there, and he says, how did you get in here? You don't have your what? Your marriage garment on. And he takes that one and what? Sends him out. The, the, the thing that I want you to understand is this. 
nobody will be here who isn't supposed to be here. Nobody will be here who isn't supposed to be here. Now, this is the part where Satan has robbed us. How many of you know what a courtship is? Yeah. A courtship is nothing but a wooing time. And the wooing time is God in our lost state. He woos us to be the bride of his son. In Romans 2, it speaks about it's the kindness of God that draws us to what? To repentance. It's the kindness. It's the kindness of the groom that brings the bride to a place. Boy, I love him. It's a possibility he could be my husband. It's the wooing of the man. It's the chasing of the man, wooing the bride that he's after. Now, the thing is, when did God start his wooing? It's in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. Now, understand this principle in the Hebrew marriage. It was always the father of the groom that initiated the contract with the bride's father. It was always the father who initiates the contract for the marriage. And God initiates that contract of the marriage of the church and of his son in John 3.16 because he gave. Because in that contract, the father is setting forth a pledge of his son to love that man's daughter. And that he gives his son. And some of the studies on this said a lot of these contracts was drawn up even before the children were born. How would you like to marry somebody that you never saw? Somebody you never met? I used to think that was totally impossible. Until I met a man by the name of Uchi, who went to Liberty University. He was from Africa. And Uchi had to work two years, was it, Tyler, just to buy all her family a gift? Two and a half years. Because he had to buy all of his bride's family, uncles, sisters, everybody in the family. He had to buy them all a gift before he could marry his wife. He only saw his wife once. And that's when they were around three or four years old, when the contract was signed. And I asked Uchi, I said, Uchi, how can you marry somebody you don't know? And he came back with this answer. My father's always done good to me, and I trust him even in the selection of my wife that he's going to do good to me. Just think if our young ladies in our society today would have that. 
that my father has always done good to me. Or even the young man, my father has always done good. That can say, this is the one I think you should be married to. This is the one I've entered into a contract with. No. But we've all gotten way off the thing. So we move from this thing of courtship, of wooing somebody that we're going to marry. But yet God wooed us unto himself. He ended the contract and he wooed us unto himself. Then comes the whole issue of engagement or the dowry payment that takes place. And the dowry payment is the Holy Spirit that he gives to guarantee what he says he's going to do, he's going to do. It's a pledge that's made up front that you're going to be married to my son. And he gives a down payment or the dowry of that through the gift of the Holy Spirit into our lives. That's that down payment that he gives. That we are guaranteed that one day we're going to be at a wedding and we're going to be joined together with Jesus Christ. Because of the guarantee he gives us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Marriage basically has two parts. Here, the selection and the payment. God selected whoever will come. The down payment was made by the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The down payment or the dowry in a sense also has been given in blood. Then at the proper time, the father would initiate the friends of the groom with the contract to go and fetch the bride and bring the bride to his house. Because under the Hebrew way of marriage, the marriage always took place at the father's house. Marriage always took place at the father's house. Remember where he says, boy, they've been made ready. They are presented, and Christ says, that boy, yeah, they've been made ready. Because I'm going to present my bride to myself in a manner without spot or wrinkle. I'm going to present them to myself. And it's amazing of what he does in doing so. Because he presents them to himself. And they're without spot. They're without wrinkle. They're holy. They're pure. So in Revelation 19, he says, boy, they've been made ready. Are you being made ready? Are you being made ready for the wedding, the consummation of this wedding 
as you step into this marriage? Are you being washed? Is your mind being renewed? Is your heart being purified? Are you being made holy? That Christ will present you unto himself as his bride. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. I want you to look at the preparation here. It is that preparation where one, when they consider themselves found worthy, who have been asked if, would you marry me, really begin to purify themselves. The same thing is expected of a man and a woman in a sense. When a man asks a woman to be his wife or a state of engagement, the woman must be willing at that point to forsake what? All other young men who are pursuing. That's part of the purifying. She has to be willing to forget all of the men who she have dated or may have thought she was in love with. That's part of the purifying. She has to prepare herself mentally separate from the man. And we're going to talk about the man in a moment. The woman has to prepare herself emotionally to leave the house of her father and mother and totally entrust herself into the hands of the man who is asking for her hand. The man... The scripture always points to him as somebody who will sleep with anything and everything. That has to say to himself, I am now committed to this one and no other. He has to begin to wash his mind and cleanse his mind as he looks upon other women They do not have the same charisma. They do not have the same amazement that when he looks upon his wife. He has to, and this is why in Israel with the Hebrew, the man was able to take time off work even to be able to go and prepare a place for what? For where he was going to bring his bride. Because at that point, he's going to take all responsibility of her. Men, never tell a woman this is a 50-50 deal because you won't find it in Scripture. Never demand your wife to have to go out and work. She got a job. Seeing about you. If she goes to work... You let her make that decision. But you also let her make the decision of what she want to do with her finances. If she brings it home, she says she trusts you. 
If she brings it home, she feels secure that you're going to do the proper things with it. But remember, you're the one who said you're going to be responsible for her, not her being responsible for you. And Satan has turned this thing around where women now are responsible for grown men and men can go out and play with no responsibility. And Christ, when he took me and bought me with a price, with his own precious blood, he became totally responsible of me as his bride. That he would wash me and cleanse me and renew me and love me. Get to that verse. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her. Did what? Gave. Giving himself up for her. Then it says in 26, to make her holy. He's doing something. He's making me holy. He's making me pure. He's making me clean. He's renewing my mind. Don't think Gus. And Elaine Brown had it easy. We both contemplated divorce. We both contemplated leaving each other. Because one, I had the wrong idea of what a man was. My idea was that I bought me a new car every two years. I went out on Friday, Saturday night while she stayed home with the kids. I had a wrong warped picture of what a man was. And a lot of us can have the wrong picture of what a man is supposed to be. And if you really want to be a man, get a good picture of Christ and see him taking care of the church. And you will gain your manhood. As you follow him. And he says, boy, the man makes her holy. Christ made her holy. Cleansing her. Now, if she's being cleansed, that says there was some what? Some dirt there. You don't wash something unless it needs to be what? Washed. That Christ is washing us. Remember, we're the bride. He's cleansing us. He's washing us. He's preparing us to be used by him. Understand this principle. You don't use filth. When last time you sat down to a filthy table with some old dirty dishes ready to fix your meal and put it on it? How many of you like to fix your plate with the food left on there three days ago? When you sit down to a table, you want the tablecloth clean. You want the plate clean. You don't want the silverware that two or three other people have used. You want it all what? Clean. That's what Christ is doing in my life. He's cleansing me. He's cleansing me that he can use me. Let's take another step. He says, boy, that he is cleansing me, her by the washing with water through the word. 
Now, if you're out of the word, are you being washed? You know, uh, if you're not really putting your clothes in a wash machine or in some water, and this is what some of us do as Christians, we act like we're being washed. We just go over here, we act like we got some water, and we try to shake the wrinkles out, shake the dirt off, even get a stick and beat some of the dirt off. Does that make it clean? You got to put that dirty thing in some what? Some water. Sometimes it takes some bleach. Sometimes it takes some cheer. It takes some added stuff to help get that thing clean that you're willing to wear it. And he simply says, By the washing of water through the word. The more you're in the word, the more you're going to wash yourself. The more you're in the word, the more you're going to cleanse yourself. The more you're in the word, you're going to purify yourself. The more you're in the word, your mind is going to be cleansed. Because Satan, he dirties our minds. He dirties our minds. He dirties our thoughts. But the more you're in the word of God, the more your thought life. It would be surprising to you how you are thinking now and what you think and your thought life now and your imaginary life now that once you get into the word, how your thinking change, how your thought life change, and how you even perform. Because as a man thinketh what? So is he. And he goes on and he says, and to present her, this is the part I like, to himself. God took this old nasty, filthy rag, as Isaiah says, and he cleansed it. He purified it. He's making it holy that he can present Gus Brown to himself. To himself. The only thing I have to do is let him do it. That's all. Let him do it. And then work with him. Work with him. And at that proper time, as I said, the father then, he sends the servant to fetch the bride. And I believe that's part of the scripture of what God says. No man knoweth the hour or the time. The bride never knew. She was aware of a contract that her father entered into to give her away and that one day she would be leaving his home. But she never knew the time. She never knew when the friends of the groom were going to come and say, here's the contract. We're going to take the bride to the groom. She never knew. This is our engagement period. We're engaged to be married to Jesus Christ as his church. We're engaged 
to be married to him as his people. The marriage has not really taken place yet because the wedding hasn't taken place. But the engagement has. The down payment has. The ring or the seal has been given. And what we're waiting for is the father to say, go get the bride and bring her home. Go get the bride and bring her home. Now, go with me to Matthew 24. Verse 31. Only the Father knows the hour. Only the Father knows the time. And he will send the angels to bring us home for the wedding. It will be a trumpet sound. But how God does it, I really don't know. And I can read the scriptures that, yes, it's a trumpet sound of the angel. And we're all caught up in a twinkling of an eye. Is God putting his sickle in and harvesting? There are different illustrations that God gives us. But what he is saying is this, I'm coming back for you. And when you read John 14, 1 through 3, it says, my father has what? Many mansions. See? And Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I'm going to prepare a place for you, will not I return and receive you what? Unto myself. He's like that groom who has taken off preparing a place for who? His bride. He's preparing that place for his bride. So in verse 31 it says, Boy, let me get there. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. For what purpose? For the wedding feast. For the wedding feast that is going to take place. Now, this is taking place before the millennium. Some commentaries that you read will say, boy, this... Wedding feast and the wedding supper goes all the way through the millennium. I don't think it does. I think it just, it happens and I'm with him. I'm with him for this reason. One, when he comes back to reign in the millennium, and we're going to talk about this further, who comes back to reign with him? Who comes back to judge with him? And I think there has to be a uniting, there has to be a joining before we ever sit in those judgment seats to judge people during the millennial time. And he goes on and he says, boy, the union takes place where at? In heaven. Heaven is God's home. Heaven is Jesus' home. The bride is being brought where? To his home. For the wedding. For the wedding to take place. And then the celebration feast that takes place. He comes on down and he says in verse 9 of Revelation 19, When the angel said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. 
At this, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said, to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with the brothers who hold to the testimony of who? Now, underline some. Who hold to what? The testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of what? Prophecy. And after the wedding, we have this big celebration. Now, what's so special about that celebration? What's so special? Isn't it something after we have a wedding, we go and have usually a what? A celebration after the wedding. But there's also something that takes place usually at that wedding, at the celebration. And usually it's a very special time for the groom and the bride. And usually we call it either champagne or we fix their glasses that they do what? They drink it what? In a sense, together. It's a symbolness of their becoming what? One. Go with me to Luke twenty two sixteen, remembering this supper, the wedding supper. Because I believe something takes place very, very special here in Luke twenty two sixteen. He says He's having the Lord's Supper, as we're going to have here in a few moments. He says, after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. I think at this supper, at this time of celebration, we're going to drink with him. The wedding has taken place. The marriage now is enforced. The celebration takes place. And he drinks it anew with us. I hope I've been able to paint a little picture. I hope somehow I've been able to challenge the heart. Because, see, the millennial is really going to take place. The rapture is going to take place. The question is, is this. Are you being made ready? Are you ready? And do you really know, if you have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ and you're truly saved, you're going to be judged for everything you do. I'm going to be judged as a father. I'm going to be judged as a husband. I'm going to be judged as an employer, an employee. I'm going to be judged on how I treat my neighbor. I'm going to be judged on how I treated my friends. I'm going to be judged on how I take care of my grandchildren. I'm going to be judged on everything I do. Why? Because in all those areas... God has made it possible for me to always do the right thing. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.
Father, we thank you and praise you, Lord, for your loving kindness unto us. And we thank you for your